Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. This is the show where we explore the world of neuroaffirming parenting and the wonderful lived and learned experiences around neurodiversity as a concept. So please join me and just think of me as your online mom friend that will not judge you. I'm the Neuroaffirming Parent and today's episode, we're going to dive into the concept of neurodiversity affirming parenting practices. So why do I do this on the third episode? Well, my hope is that you've listened to the trailer, you've been intrigued, you listened to the first episode, and you've taken what I've given you a little snippet of neurodiversity and you've learned a bit yourself. And then you learned about more of my experience and journey from becoming a regular parent to a neuroaffirming parent on the second episode, which was a special with my husband. So here I kind of want to lay down the foundation, kind of give you a disclaimer that I am not an expert, and also give you some background information. So over this past year, I've been kind of learning a lot about neurodiversity and structured literacy. And one of the great things about the Cox Campus website with all their free training is they teach you more about implicit bias. And so implicit bias, which implicit is goes along with neurodiversity and literacy, is the things that you don't directly do. It's kind of behind the scenes, our subconscious, and it's kind of subversive. So you're not openly saying, oh, I'm biased, even though I am right now. But it's the little things that, you know, you learn about. And So let's say that you're talking to somebody and they have no clue of neurodiversity. If they start saying certain words that are not exactly affirming, you kind of know in the back of your head, hmm, they might not take my information as well as somebody else who understands neurodiversity. So I want to be upfront and direct and explain what are some of my implicit biases. And as you know, with the title of this podcast, I love neurodiversity. I fight for neurodiversity awareness, acceptance, and kind of understanding. I'm also a dyslexic adult. So I fight for dyslexia awareness, embracing and understanding. I'm also gifted. So I fight for people to understand what giftedness is. It's not just a high achiever. It's not just the gifted neurotype. Sometimes it's both. And also that includes twice exceptional people or two E adults and students. And then there's also RCCX theory you've seen me post about. I've posted a little bit about EDS, which I'm still learning about as well. There's science of reading, which is structured literacy, science of math, which is just using explicit instruction with mathematics. And there's evidence-based practices that I love. Social emotional learning is something I love which goes along with social cognitive learning theory, and obviously diversity in education, as well as inclusivity in education and business as well. So what am I against? I am a mixed adult, so I'm against racism. I'm against ageism because I've experienced it. I'm against sexism because I'm a woman and I've experienced that. I'm against most forms of bigotry. I do not like ableism. I do not like constructivism, which is mostly in education. I do not like behaviorism. I do not support ABA therapy because it didn't work for my daughter. 
I do not support whole language because again, it didn't work for my daughter. I do not support balanced literacy because let's say it together, it didn't work for my daughter. And I'm firmly against the wait to fail approach. And I've recently posted about this and I've posted about it in the past because it was documented in 1969 but to this day, schools will still tell parents, hmm, maybe your child needs to just mature before they're ready to learn to read, to do math, or do certain things, which is not true. That does not align with neuroscience or cognitive, social cognitive learning theory. That just does not sit well with me. So what is neuroaffirming parenting for me? The quick little summary is it's using affirming practices in parenting revolving around creating an environment where a child's unique traits and the parent's unique traits and needs are recognized respected and supported it's about fostering a sense of belonging and empowerment and why is that important it's important because we come from We have to recognize the powerful, meaningful, and the hard work of the MAD movement and the autistic rights movement because these were adults that had neurotypes that were told as children you should be seen and not heard, that they weren't taught self-efficacy, they weren't taught self-advocacy. And once they switched from being a student and a child to an adult, they were largely left on their own or their parents had to make a tough choice of, do I help my child? Does my child live in my home indefinitely? Or do I ship them off to a home that I have to trust and give them money to essentially take care of my child for me? And I'm not exactly saying this in an abstract way because I do have a learned experience from my mother. She grew up in the 70s when they still had certain homes like these for teenagers that ran away from home. And if they deemed that your parent couldn't take care of you or couldn't keep you in line, then the state took control of you and you had no autonomy and you had to do what these people said. A good movie reference is Girl Interrupted. That was pretty much my mother's teenage experience. And she largely got out of it. I mean, she did make friends in this institution, but what she learned from those friends was how to balance a checkbook, how to be an adult. And then she went and got entered into nursing school, got her LPN, and she's been an LPN since 1989. So why do I care to specify this as a learned experience? It's because a lived experience is something that you individually live. I wasn't even born when my mom did all that. So I didn't live through that. So she told me all about her difficulties so I could use that information in my own life so I wouldn't have the same challenges that she did. And honestly, that was the biggest factor for why I didn't drink when I was younger. I didn't do drugs when I was younger because my mom was honest with me. And that's not always something that she got in her own home because her parents were a part of the silent generation. So her mother was very, what you'd say today is authoritarian. She had a schedule every day that she had to stick to. Her mom cooked the food and her mom had certain preferences. So her mom liked to eat food in a certain order. So if my mom ever ate like her green beans before her carrots, she would get in trouble. So my mom's 
learned experience for that when she parented me is, I wouldn't say completely neuroaffirming, but the building blocks for neuroaffirming because she remembered her experience in childhood enough to know that she didn't want to do the same. And in a lot of ways, of course, that's rebellion that's going to happen. And the difference is the practices my mom implemented with me worked for me. It didn't always work for my sister. My sister needed a much more structured environment. My mom tells me the story of how she went to a therapist and the therapist said, hey, you know, she needs some structure in her life, so get a timer. And so like, just if brushing teeth is hard, get her a timer that she can visually see and, you know, put, what is it, the two minutes on so she can see that time go down, she can get the task done and move on. And my mother is very (laughs) against schedules or any kind of structure because she rebels. So she said, no, I'm not doing that. And so my sister has now been later diagnosed with ADHD. And now we know my mom also has that too. So these learned experiences I know from observing my family, I now know better. So if my children are struggling today with certain tasks, or even if I experience task avoidance, I bought the visual timer. It works for our family. It is much easier for me to explain time in a concept where even I experience time blindness when I have a visual aid. And so a lot of these, you know, if you just Google or if you go on Amazon and you search for, you know, neurodiversity affirming tools or sensory tools, they are a lot of good resources because it's not just that they work and that research helps prove that they work, but we have these lived and learned experiences from the parents to tell us that they work. So to move on, I am a victim of gatekeeping. So I do not like to promote gatekeeping. And where did I learn about gatekeeping is from my former job as a personal trainer. It was my job to gatekeep all the exercise and nutrition information in the world, even though I knew that legally my boss was selling nutrition plans when she wasn't supposed to be. So a lot of my experiences are out of frustration. And for me, I like to be an ethical person. I am a secular humanist. I like ethical practices. I like to limit my liability as much as I can in life. And it's not so much just to be deemed a good person. It's honestly to lessen my cognitive load and it's less for me to remember. If I even attempted to lie in my daily life, my brain would be like, you got to remember that lie. You have to remember what you told them. And then you have to go down this rabbit hole of where that lie goes. I don't have time for that. I, to be perfectly honest, I envy people that can do that. So I don't see it so much as, oh, I'm a holier than thou person just because I don't lie. It's honestly, I'm doing the right thing. I got straight A's all in school because it was the easiest route for me. I could avoid attention if I didn't get in trouble. So I followed the rules. I wouldn't get yelled at or argued at if I got passing grades. So I did that. Where my older sister, she's opposite of me, she does like attention and she needs that attention. So yes, there were certain times in our childhood where she did get in trouble and she got the attention from our mom that she was seeking. Where my mom's the opposite. She would rather spend the day with me. And I'm just like, can you not? (laughs) So 
that's a little bit of background. So to move on, remember in the other episodes, I said, I am not the star of this. I do not want attention. You as the listener and my followers are the star because I want you to benefit from this information. And I know the sad thing is, unless I talk about these topics, this information doesn't get spread. So from what I've learned about a lot of dyslexic strengths, I have the strength of seeing the bigger picture, problem solving, analyzing, and simplifying complex ideas. I understand that neurodiversity is very complex, neuroscience is very complex, and parenting is very complex. But if I can understand this, so can you. So here are some basics. First of all, educate yourself on neurodiversity. And I don't say that to be exclusive of saying, well, only the people who understand neurodiversity can be neuroaffirming parents. I'm saying it in a empowering way of if you like to read books, if you like to watch videos, if you like to listen to other podcasts, or if you just like to learn from social media, which is social cognitive learning theory, because that's what influencing is. But if you prefer those types of way to learn, go ahead. This is your ticket to learn neurodiversity, your preferred way. And the truth is, it's honestly just benefited me in so many different ways. Because when I look at my childhood, I no longer have all of that animosity and remorse and sadness. I now understand my mother better. I understand my sister better. I understand my father better. And also it helped me with my mom guilt because when you get the news that your child is struggling in school, you immediately go into the spiral of what did I do wrong? Like, did I not take the the vitamins enough when I was pregnant? Did I not put, um, did I not read enough? Did I not do anything enough? And it's just a layer of another mental load that's put on you because not everybody else has that anxious thought spiral but you start kind of going in your head what could I have done better and that's why neurodiversity is powerful because it tells us that every single person's brain doesn't just look the same because they are physically different but they are wired differently so no there is nothing that you could have done to major kid a different human they are born who they are and the great thing about this is neurodiversity is hereditary. So just like when you go to the doctor's office and you have to remember your medical history, we should be recording our neurodiversity history. So if you have a mother that's ADHD, or if you have a father that's dyslexic, or if your parents were in the gifted education program, or if you have a cousin that's autistic, or all these different little variables, they can help you understand that oh you may be a neurodivergent person and then if your partner is also neurodivergent you may have a neurodivergent child and this all helps you better understand your communication your behavior your preferences your strengths your challenges it helps you become a better family unit and so I would avoid and honestly I just It's not even to exclude people that feel like they need to fix their child or they want their kid to fit into society or they want to teach their kid how to conform to society. 
but you don't need to go into neurodiversity thinking that it's a solution. You need to go into neurodiversity thinking it's a resource to help you celebrate the neurodiversity or just the diversity in general of your brain and your family. And again, I'm gonna talk about social cognitive learning theory. Why do you need to learn about neurodiversity first? Because if you are gonna model for your child, you need to know it so they, they can learn it. And so social cognitive learning theory is from Dr. Albert Bandura, who's since passed away, but he was a behaviorist first and he saw the strict constraints and the limitations of just using reinforcement and punishment in behaviorism. So he moved away from that and developed social cognitive learning theory that emphasizes the role of observation imitation and social interactions in the process of learning and behavior development. What's the greatest example of this? Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, influencing, even this podcast. So it highlights the power of social interactions through modeling. When you see something, it's just like role models. If you see role models and representation in the media, you feel more empowered that you can do it yourself. And this helps shape behaviors and attitudes into a positive way to move away from the negative. And then how do we do this? The best way that I do it and in the simplest form I can explain is using I statements. And that just means expressing your own feelings using I statements to avoid sounding like you're accusing somebody or if you're judging somebody. So let's say you're modeling something for your child and they have a question for you and they're like, well, how do you do that? You want you don't want to say, well, a throwaway statement. You want to include an I statement. And you don't even want to say like, well, mommy does this um, and daddy does that. You want to say, I like to read. So you explain like, this is how I learn to read. I learned to read using hooked on phonics and you create a whole conversation using I statements. And then you invite your child to use I statements to speak for themselves as well. And when you do this, you're creating a safe space for your child. You want them to express themselves without fear or judgment. Now I know this is controversial because a lot of people might be following on social media, gentle parenting or positive parenting, which in itself isn't a bad thing, it's just kind of half-hearted when it comes to explaining how to do this. Because when you create a safe space, it invites all the feelings. And that's where social-emotional learning comes in and is very important. Because there was a lot of times when my, you know, you hear about the terrible twos and you hear about the toddler phase. And it's tough. I mean, honestly, the best phrase I've learned is the hardest parenting phase is the one you are in because it's true and when I was in the toddler phase it was very hard because you see these little brilliant humans developing wonderful ideas in their brain and they just don't know how to process it to make words or to process these big big feelings so as our parents it's our job to incorporate those visual aids I was very lucky because I had the time Dollar Tree had these feeling posters and even the Target Dollar Spot had feeling posters. So I purchased one, put it on the wall in my kid's room, had a little calming corner 
And so anytime they had some big emotions, we'd go to the common corner and we'd talk about feelings. You know, if they felt comfortable enough to use some art, we'd get markers and crayons and I'd be like, hey, just pick a color that matches this feeling. Can you draw? Can you show me how that feeling looks? And, you know, you point to the chart and you talk about these feelings and you explain those feelings. You practice using your face to make those feelings. And it was funny to me because when my daughter got pulled one day by the school um, counselor, the counselor said, oh my goodness, I was so shocked that she could name all of these emotions and that she understood them. And I was like, yeah, why are you shocked? But (laughs) for me, it was just very confusing because we had normalized it so much in our household to talk about feelings. And where did it come from? Because me and my husband grew up in a household where we didn't talk about feelings. I remember vividly a time where I told my mom, I don't feel good. I feel sad, but it's more than that. I feel depressed. But because my mom had been diagnosed by a doctor with clinical depression, she said, no, you're not. That's not depression. You don't know what depression is. It's not as bad as my depression. So instead of validating my emotion or affirming me or talking to me, she dismissed my feelings, belittled my feelings and trivialized my feelings, thinking that she was helpful. And in the moment, looking back, I'm grateful that she tried to use empathy to see herself in my situation, but I wish she had the skills and the tools to be able to do more. And to be honest, that includes practicing active listening. When you practice active listening, it's listening to your child without judgment and trying to understand their perspective And it's not just getting down on their level. I mean, that's a great thing to do. And because we all grew up with this phrase of, well, put yourself in somebody's shoes. And that's not always a great reference point because you shouldn't look at somebody's perspective and put your lived experience as a superior version of their lived experience. You really need to kind of think back to a time that you felt how they're feeling and validate their feelings and experience, even if they differ from your own. So you don't want to look at a perspective and think, hmm, what would I do in that situation? You want to think, hmm, what would they do in that situation? And how do you mitigate a lot of these feelings is by working around a routine. As much as I didn't believe it at first. My family hasn't always followed a routine. We wanted to be flexible, not just because we liked it, but because we had to. In the beginning of parenting, me and my husband both were working full time, one of us day shift, one of us night shift, and then we'd swap. And so routine was hard because we were subject to our job at any time. It could have been called in, it was a high stress environment. So establishing a routine was hard. Thankfully, our kids just went with it. Um, But now that my husband is the primary um, income and I'm at home, we have a lot more freedom to establish a routine. And school does that for us. And so there's a certain time we have to wake up. There's a certain time we eat lunch. There's a certain time we hope to eat dinner together. Um, But we include those realistic expectations and the flexibility in that. And when I say realistic expectations, I'm talking about understanding everyone's capabilities and needs and strengths and weaknesses to set achievable goals when we consider all of our neurodivergent traits together. So what does that mean? So like in the last episode, we talked about how our daughter mentioned that she wanted to go on a beach trip. 
And we noticed this. It was, we were all dysregulated. We were all having issues with the school. We were just burnt out. And we needed a way to recharge. And a lot of people do that with vacations. Now, we didn't have the wonderful finances in the world. So we had to do it on a budget. And so we didn't immediately say, okay, we're planning a beach trip because we didn't want to set the expectation and not be able to fulfill that obligation and then have to cancel any plans that we had made. So we made it a goal that, hey, we'll save up some money. And then once we make the, uh, the reservations, then we tell the kids about two days before and we'd set the expectation. And so what that means is that we kind of sit as a family, we talk about what we want what we want to accomplish. We even talk about backup plans like, hey, if it rains this day, we're going to bring jackets, you know, get everybody on board to understand that mom and dad have a plan, but if that plan fails, we have backup plans as well. And that really helps us on the start of a trip. Now, as parents, we know kids don't always like car rides or road trips that feel like they're too long. So what do we bring? Toys, books, reinforcements, snacks. Make sure to stay hydrated with water, right? Because every brain needs water. Um, So those are things that we think about when we're packing up. And it's really helpful with neurodiversity to have that in mind. And even for me and my husband, like we use certain um, apps that really help us stay regulated as well. We use Google Maps in the car so we know how far we are. We know our timestamps. We know if we have to get gas at some point, if we need to stretch our legs, if we need to check for bathroom breaks, certain things. And then we also use apps on our phone for not just our music preferences, but the kids' music preferences and podcasts. And so there's certain things that we kind of have as a routine now that we run through this checklist. And even if all else fails and nothing works, we kind of stop, take a break, reassess, talk to our kids and see what need isn't being met. And where did we learn that from? Mostly as they were babies, because we knew that if our kids were fed, if they were tired, or if they were unclean, if they needed a hygiene check, like diaper change, these are a few sensory points to hit on that you want to make sure are fulfilled first. Um, Now that they're older, I would even include social in there. They kind of need to talk to us you know, and have that break. And even, you know, it's hard as parents now to make sure that we have that one-on-one time. And I feel so much empathy for bigger families because I know that's tough, but it's so important. And let's move on to talk about positive reinforcement because I know discipline and punishment are not just controversial topics, but they are hard to deal with as parents. You have to kind of come together and talk to each other and see how you want to go about this. And for me and my husband, we don't exactly like toxic positivity, which is just, you know, trying to be happy all the time and focusing excessively on positive thinking, avoiding negative emotions. We don't want to avoid any emotions because we don't want to cause harm. And we also don't like punitive measures. We don't like just punishing for no reason or out of our own feelings. We want to focus on teaching and guiding. And for me, to be honest, it's fully selfish because if you just punish, that kid's gonna come back and want more punishment and expect you to teach them how to learn. 
where if you teach and guide a kid and you incorporate that self-efficacy and self-advocacy, it's less work for you. So honestly, I mean, I could rebrand neuroaffirming as lazy parenting, but neuroaffirming sounds way nicer. So (laughs) we like to focus on our child's strengths and passions because we do that as a couple. And what I mean is my husband, he, and you know, some people use special interests. I'm kind of moving away from that because I don't want to appropriate a term that is used for the autistic community where for me, it's definitely always been passions and, or just a strength because my husband's strength is absolutely, he, I wouldn't even say that he has time blindness. He's almost the opposite where he is on time to a T. He's very good with timing and he's very good with transitions. I am not always good with transitions. I'm much more better with empathy and kind of understanding where my child's coming from. So we use our strengths with each other to work together. Uh, Right now, my son really likes space in the solar system and planets. And my daughter really likes Egypt and cats. And so we remember all these things. So when we go out and we want to have fun or we just want to have a cool bonding family moment, we remember all these. And we allow for self-expression. You didn't know it, but behind the scenes, my daughter was asking to draw. And we never say no to drawing. As soon as they were old enough to I knew they weren't going to color every wall in the house with a crayon, we left art materials out 24-7. Anytime they wanted paper, anytime they wanted to color or draw, they have at it. We have Play-Doh in our house 24-7. We do have a few fidgets, which sometimes they are not always helpful if they're just scattered around the house but the older they get they kind of put them in a place where they can find them and they're helpful but ultimately this is about a sensory friendly environment and I am personally so selfish and glad that the pandemic opened people's eyes to that parents want these items parents will pay for these items so for like Christmas last year all I had to tell my mom was, hey, Google sensory toys. And she found a bunch that were great for my kids. Like we have a foam balance beam that is great that they love to play with. We have like uh, so many sensory toys. Like if I could start a shop where I could resell them, I would. But <laughs> I'd probably have to clean them first. But ultimately, even when their passions or their interests change, you as the parent have to be flexible because we have to recognize that our child's needs and preferences can change not just over time but sometimes overnight and we have to be open to adjusting our parenting style to accommodate these changing needs so one example is what's a big struggle for every parent halloween you talk to your kid at the beginning of October and you say, hey, what do you want to be? And then you're, all these stores say, oh, well, you got to pay 40 bucks for this costume that your kids wants. And then what happens? The day of Halloween, they've changed their mind like 10 different times. So what's a good solution? Amazon has dress up boxes or certain costumes that you can wear all year round or pajamas now. There's a lot of pajamas that look like costumes that are 20 bucks at Target way cheaper, way easier, and they're comfortable. Or the only thing I'm sad about I didn't get to do was make a Dangle Tiger costume because I saw on Pinterest one year, there was a great easy way to just use a sweat t-shirt and sweat pants and paint the little tiger stripes and bam, 
you have a Daniel Tiger costume. But it's just simple things to make it easier because you want to embrace the flexibility, not just in your mindset as a parent, but in routines, expectations, all while encouraging your child to express their needs and preferences confidently. And why is this important? Because you want to model and teach coping strategies. And I love Dingle Tiger because there's an episode about getting mad and who teaches it is Mom Tiger. And she explains how when she's mad, she counts. I can't remember if it counts to five or 10, but she models how she counts and uses her breath calm herself down so then Daniel knows oh my mom does it so I can do it so you want to I wouldn't even say just buy a book and find routines that are random you want to find routines that work for you that you feel comfortable modeling so you can teach them to your children and the reason you want to practice these and feel comfortable with them is because when high stress or difficult situations come up you want to have these in the back pocket. You want to have these quick go-to so you know what to do. So the faster that you can deregulate yourself and your child, the faster you can move on and have a great day. And ultimately, it's not so much about having a happy kid or having a happy mom. Regulation is about being comfortable in your body. And sometimes you can be uncomfortable and feel comfortable. An example, roller coasters. You know, roller coasters are thrill rides. There's a lot of thrill rides where the first time you do them, yeah, it's scary, but once you get comfortable, it's fun. And that's all about listening to your own boundaries. And how do you do that? You learn how to respect boundaries. You understand when you need space or time to process certain things. And we have to model that before we can explain it and teach it to our kids and expect them to understand when is a good time to set a boundary and use that boundary and respect that boundary. And again, you want to model that empathy and acceptance. And the biggest thing with our family is we want to tell our children that we love them unconditionally. So, you know, there might be times that, you know, I mean, parents, you're going to yell. It's going to happen. You can't prevent it. You can't plan for it. It's going to happen. It's important to apologize, explain how you felt in that moment, tell them, you know, it's not about them. Even if you get mad at your child, you have to break it down and explain that you're not mad at your child for who they are. You're going to be mad at either the situation. You're going to be mad at how they handle things. You can be mad at their behavior, but you are not mad at the child. And you want to affirm them and remind them that you love them no matter what. And you want to accept them for who they are, no matter what. And once they know that you do love them unconditionally and there's no question about it, it's going to help you become a better advocate for your child because they're going to know that you're going to be their voice and their champion within, it could be the education system. It could be if they have a tough relationship when they grow up, it could be a work situation, a medical situation. When you model and practice self-efficacy at home and you integrate self-advocacy in your home, you show your child how to be an advocate and then they trust you to be an advocate for them. But then when they're older, they can be their own best self-advocate. But ultimately, if none of this works, seek professional support. 
And I wish I could say that there is a perfect guideline or a perfect term to lead you to, but unfortunately, it's not. Um, in America, I know it's not. Uh, in other countries, you know, with the universal healthcare system, it's probably more possible. But from what I see online, there's even reform going on in the UK. And honestly, I want to support every international parent that is working to reform these systems to go from being in this neuronormativity paradigm and moving towards understanding neurodiversity and accepting neurodiversity because we need neuroaffirming professionals. We can't just rely on parents like me that are just winging it. We have to have neuroaffirming therapists and neuroaffirming doctors and neuroaffirming neuroscientists and neuroaffirming researchers so that we can get more data to validate what we have as a lived experience. All these lived experiences are valuable data that we could be recording, accumulating, and documenting to support us and make progress to make it these neuroaffirming practices today 10 times better. So what is the impact of neuroaffirming parenting for me? It's been huge. This time last year, I felt so lost. I personally am very much an introvert. I don't really have a lot of friends besides online because my schedule revolves around my husband's job and my children. So there's not a lot of room for me to get lunch with somebody or get coffee. And I understand that. I, I'm, I don't hate on it. But I do deeply wish I could snatch all my followers up, build a little neighborhood, plant us all as neighbors, and we could just hang out forever. Because you guys have taught me so much. I've learned so much. I love following other neurodiversity accounts. I love following other neuroaffirming accounts, other neurodivergent accounts, because I don't feel alone. And that's why I don't just stick in my little 2E community of just dyslexic and gifted people. I don't want to exist in an echo chamber. I don't want to hear the same conversations like a broken record. I want to talk to more people. I want to connect with more people. And I want to model for my children that they can see a neuroinclusive, correction, neuroinclusive future. So thank you so much for joining us on this journey into the world of neuroaffirming parenting. Remember, by embracing affirming practices, we're not just parenting our children. We are helping them blossom into their own authentic selves. Please remember that every child is unique and these strategies that work best for one child may differ for another, even in the same household. So be willing to be flexible, adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about your child's needs and strengths. Being a neuroaffirming parent is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and share and leave us a review. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The Neuroaffirming Parent. Keep nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. And look forward to our next episode. Thank you.